Welcome to Pocket Guide to Hell, the radio show, where we explore the intersections of art, politics, and culture as illuminated by Chicago's past. Along the way, we talk with fine folks doing the work of keeping the past present and show you the places where the city's history resides today. Near the end of the 19th century, a visiting labor leader called Chicago a, quote, pocket edition of hell. Asked if that was fair, he took in the corruption, inequality, and general nastiness and said, quote, on second thought, hell is a pocket edition of Chicago. But these are the stories, the people, and places that nudge us a bit closer to heaven. To help us get a glimpse into the future of this unfinished world of ours, there has been created for the New York World's Fair a thought-provoking exhibit of the developments ahead of us, the greater and better world of tomorrow that we in America are building today, a vivid tribute to the American scheme of living whereby individual effort, the freedom to think, and the will to do have given birth to a generation of men who always want new fields for greater accomplishment and will always find new things for all others to enjoy. Come, let's travel into the future. What? will we see? Among those things visitors could enjoy at the 1939 World's Fair in Queens, New York, was the introduction of the first television. If television pointed the way to how the future would be seen, then the soundtrack on the documentary that we just heard a clip from predicted how it would sound. All the notes you just heard came from a single instrument invented in Chicago, the Novacord. Now, the Novacord was the invention of Lawrence Hammond, who came from a prominent family in Evanston, Illinois. He was named for his grandfather, the Congregational Minister Henry Lawrence Hammond, who very suddenly and quite unexpectedly dropped dead in the home of Lawrence's father in March of 1893. Lawrence's father, William A. Hammond, was a prominent banker, who was also a corrupt banker and his practices led to the ruin of the National Bank of Illinois. In January of 1897, when Lawrence was just a few weeks shy of turning two years old, William A. Hammond walked into Lake Michigan and drowned himself. Thus, the course was set for young Lawrence, a life that would be marked by the push and pull between the spiritual, represented by the life of his grandfather, and the worldly, represented by the life of his father. It would be a life that would be marked by moments equally triumphant and tragic. Raised by his artist mother and three sisters, including one sister Eunice, who would go on to be a founding editor of Poetry Magazine, Lawrence developed an interest in engineering and tinkering and set out in his own words to become, quote, a professional inventor. Before he was 18, he was back in the United States, having spent several years being educated in Europe, and he also had with him his first patent. It would be the first of what would be 110 patents. His first major invention, the electric clock, came along in the late 1920s, when the twin challenges of competition from rival clock companies and the Great Depression became too great, he used the motors from his clocks in designing the electric organ. The electric organ would premiere in 1935, and it would make Lawrence's fortune, 
And in this episode, we're joined by journalist, journalist Sam Chulke. And Sam, you've been spending a lot of time researching Lawrence Hammond and the electric organ and the Nova Chord. Um, so, you know, how did Hammond go about designing the electric organ? What made it unique as an electronic instrument? Well, what's unique about it is this is that threshold between electric music and electronic music, right? So, like the solid body guitar, that's the electric bass. These are things that come along in the 30s as well. Like, it's a time where, like, music is becoming electrified, but all the instruments sound like instruments we already know, right? But the Nova Chord is the first, like, real departure from that in a really serious way. The first thing that sounds like nothing else before it. It's, it's, it's electronic, like the sound is coming from the electronics inside of it. There have been a few things like this before. The theremin comes out of newly communist Russia in 1928, but that's not really a thing people like really understand, particularly like musicians don't necessarily really understand it. It looks like a writing desk with like these antennas sticking out of it. The musician plays it by not even touching it, and it makes these like eerie wailing sounds. The Nova Chord is not this. The Nova Chord looks like the electric organ in a lot of ways, and it makes sense to people who know how to play organs. Like, it's set up to become popular, right? Like, Hammond designs this thing so that people can play it. The theremin really isn't that. And so where the theremin isn't really incorporated by songwriters, because they don't really know how to write for it, the, the Nova Chord is. Um, and it's... When it comes onto the market, like people immediately see how this thing can be used because it can make organ sounds, and then they start to push it, and it can sound like a little bit more like a violin or a flute, and then Hammond can push it a little bit farther even, and it starts to get into these eerie sounds that are in that territory of the theremin. It's like this is a sound we haven't heard before, and this this causes like chaos. Well, given that based on your description, it seems like it was relatively easy for people who could play an organ or play a piano, to adapt to playing the Nova Chord. And since it had this kind of wide range of sounds that it could produce, like what were some of the, the, the first uses for it? We heard that clip from the, eight, the 1939 World's Fair, right, which was presumably one of the first times that it got a, like a broad national exposure. But like, how, were, how was the Nova Chord being used? Well, so Hollywood immediately sees how to use it, and that's where all the chaos comes from, is because mm -hmm. unions immediately start to throw a fit about it, because they see this thing can be used to replace other musicians. It can be one Novacord player. It's easy to play. It can sound like all of these things. A lot of people are going to be out of work. So even before the World's Fair, even before this thing is on the market, like Hammond is in an intense battle with the unions in Hollywood to make sure that this thing is not putting people out of work. Like Hollywood realizes it right away, and starts to buy them up for um, the sound recording studios because movies at the time are getting more complicated, more intense, more more emotional soundtracks, and they're bringing in all these tools to do that. So, like, the Nova Corps gets shipped out to radio stations, shipped out to churches, and Hollywood buys a ton of them. Um, the first story in Variety in 1939 is about this. It's about, like, <laughs> back and forth between Joseph Weber, who's the president of the American Federation of Physicians, and Hammond, like trying to figure out, like, okay, I'm gonna let I'm gonna let them buy these things and not throw a huge bit about it, but you got to make some agreements with me. And this is like the first, this is the entree of electronic music into the United States. It immediately causes a huge labor dispute, um, and so it does get picked up by Hollywood, and they start to figure it out, start to figure out like what its 
before, right? Like, there aren't new instruments very often. There hadn't really been a new American instrument from since the sousaphone. And everyone sort of, like, knows what the sousaphone is for. It's for, like, you know, wrapping around your belly and kicking down the middle of the street, right? It's the sousaphone. Like, um, but the nevichord isn't this. It's, it's something new, and it can do all these different things. And, the, you know, initially people kind of use it like an organ, and then they start to experiment a little bit more. So, like, the first use in the film is in the intermission of Gone with the Wind. And there, it's, it's playing fairly straightforward music. But then the emotional tenor of the thing starts to get explored. And the first place that that really happens is um, with Rebecca. And Rebecca mm-hmm. is the first film by Alfred Hitchcock in the United States. Right. And Re- Rebecca is this film about a woman who, re- who marries a man whose wife has died, and she's having all of these like, paranoid thoughts about like the, replacing her, and like the housekeeper keeps talking about the dead wife. And it's nerve-wracking for her and the anxiety and, and the paranoia build and build and build and every time that paranoia builds, every time that anxiety builds it's, 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 it's the novacord there that's drawing out that emotion, right? Like it's just, just this, am I myself or am I this other woman? Who am I in this place? Um, and that theme gets picked up again in the Maltese Falcon. Humphrey Bogart gets punched right in the face. He gets drugged, he gets knocked out He's waking up trying to figure out what's happened to him, and it's there that delirium is the Novacord, right? Like, the people are starting to figure out, like, this is what it's for. And, like, it, I think probably the one that people may be the most familiar with is Disney, right? Like, Disney's Dumbo is notorious for the scene where Dumbo gets drunk, and he, he hallucinates all these pink elephants. And the sound of that delirium sound of that delirium is scored by the Novacord, right? This is, this is the early place where the Novacord finds what it is in American culture. It's the sound of delirium. Hey, Sam, uh, I was wondering, you were talking about that transition moment. Um, like, what, with the Novacord in those, in like Rebecca, for instance, was that just kind of replicating, I don't know, strings or whatever instruments would have been there? Or did it fundamentally kind of change the, the lack, for lack of a better word, like the lexicon of, of emotional music. Is it changing something or is it replicating at the beginning, I guess is the question. It's a little bit of both, right? It's, 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 it's replicating things and it's slowly starting to change things too. The Nova Chord is replicating things, but it's also trying to start to change the language of music and how things are being used in Hollywood. And this really happens in 41, when the United States enters the war, and Hollywood starts cranking out monster babies. Um, there, like, the action of a monster movie is still the same horns, it's still the same strings, but there's something else that now needs to be expressed, and how it's being expressed is the Nova Chord. So in, uh, let's see, what's, what's a good one? So in um, Wolfman Meets Frankenstein, or Frankenstein Meets Wolfman, in Frankenstein Meets Wolfman, you know, the Wolfman is strapped to a table, and he's hooked up to this terrible laboratory equipment. He's staring up at the moon, and suddenly the transformation starts to take over him, and he turn, he's turning into a monster. And that moment, that's the sound of the Novacord. It's just sort of like washing sound underneath everything of this man transforming into a monster. And that sort of thing, that, that idea of like not only like delirium, of like something where you don't trust your own body, but you don't trust your own body because there's something deeper inside you that's suddenly coming out, and that thing that's coming out is monstrous, right? Like, this is, this is great for, like, the, the, the start of World War II, right? Like, right. yeah, 
and then you know, you know continuing through the, the 50s as well i mean i think now it's a good moment sam maybe to listen to a clip from a classic from 1953 where the novichord is used in just the way you described i have been waiting for you oh, take you home no take me to the mine oh no no please That was a clip from the 1953 film, It Came From Outer Space, uh, which used the Novichord on its soundtrack. Also was a 3D film, one of the first 3D films. Interestingly enough, Lawrence Hammond had a hand in inventing 3D technology for film, but that's a different story. Um, it Came From Outer Space was adapted from a story idea by Illinois' own Ray Bradbury. Um, but Sam, can you tell us a little bit more about how the Novichord was the ideal instrument to use in crafting soundtracks for things like science fiction and horror films. Yeah, so by 1950s, the, the mood is kind of changing, right? Like, we don't see monsters anymore in old Europe, right? It's not like Frankenstein and Bohemia and the Wolfman and Wales. Now we're seeing this existential dread coming to us from the space race, from nuclear weapons. We're looking outwards. And seeing the dread that comes to us in a form that really is alien and otherworldly. So it came from outer space. It's one of those first moments where this really happens. And it's great. You're right. You're absolutely right. Like a ton of Chicago ideas get mashed up in Hollywood and they create this really fun new thing out of it. Um, and, and the Nevercourt is there and it's there with a theremin. And this is that sound that everybody associates with science fiction movies. The, you know, the woo-wee-oo, that sort of mm -hmm. sound of science fiction is there. The theremin is sort of the melody, and the novichord is the underneath, um, like, su supporting instrument. It's, it's the sound of every time, and it came from outer space, that one of the characters questions whether another one of the characters has been taken over. Their mind has become controlled by the alien, right? They're not themselves. They've been gone through some transformation and become something horrible, something horrendous. And that, it's all those emotions, again, of the Novichord, right? Like, we, it's, it, came from outer, it came from outer space. And that theme, it, it starts to really define the Novichord. Like, Novichord almost now has a niche. It has, like, the danger of becoming cliché. But this wouldn't be the only niche that it would find, right, in, in Hollywood. I mean, there was another way in which the Novichord was being used quite a bit during this period, right, from, from the late 30s up through the 1950s, and that was with religious music, as we'll hear it right now in this clip of uh, that old-time religion. Give me So, Sam, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Um, like, how were 
you know, religious groups embracing this new instrument and, and kind of putting it to use? Yeah, so in Chicago in the 1930s, early 1940s, this is really, like, the core of religious life in the country in a lot of ways. Like, big things are happening in Chicago, and one of the places where this is happening is the Moody Bible. What we know now is the Moody Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, the Moody Bible Institute has come on the air, WMBI. It's one of the first chartered AM stations in the country. It's one of the only of those stations that's still operating. It's, it's professional. It's got staff. It's got writers. It's got airtime to fill. And, and they have a message they want to get out, and they have a message that needs to get out in a way that is going to compete with a number of other stations that are all operating within the same sort of world. I mean, let's be, let's be realistic here. And like, like WBI, 1941, they're attracting maybe 160,000 people. It's not a lot of people. Almost all of these people identify as like ultra-fundamentalists, ultra-Orthodox Christians. Like, it's not a huge realm of people. Um, like, nowhere near WGN or CBS at the time. But, like, this, they are, like, the player in Christian radio, right? And they survive on that relationship with their listeners. So they need to have that emotional connection, and they need to reinforce it all the time. And they create all of these different ways to do that. And one of the most popular... Um, shows is this show called Miracles and Melodies. And this is really the brainchild of Wendell Loveless. Mm-hmm. He is the one of the creative directors there and he's orchestrating all the music for it. Like this is a time in radio where you can't just play records. You have to have the band there to play it. Um, so he's, he's orchestrating this music. He's helping come up with these shows and his big hit is Miracles and Melodies. And it's a weekly show where every week there's a miracle. Every week you hear a story about someone Finding the glory of God and the sound of the glory of God is the Nova Chord. Every time someone has that moment where they reach beyond this world and they touch the divine, the sound that Loveless puts there is the sound of the Nova Chord. And like Hollywood, he's got a lot of choices. Like, he has access to, like, real pipe organs. WMBI is one of the only stations that has a real pipe organ in the studio. They have organs. They have a, like they have musicians. They have choirs that can summon up like heavenly voices if they want. But Loveless chooses the Nova Chord, and he chooses it over and over and over again. You can see his scripts from the time. Like this is not a time where he's able to send tapes out to other stations. But in their bid to become the dominant Christian radio station, what they do is they write their scripts out, and then they send it to all these stations, and they, the stations are then sort of set to do the show themselves with their own staff. And this is how syndication sort of works at the time. And if you look at these scripts, every time, Lovelace has this moment of transformation. He says, Novacord. Music, colon, Novacord. And so Christian radio seems to have really found this, too, that this is, I mean, completely independently from Hollywood. Like, they seem to have found Novacord, this thing that can create, like, both familiar sounds and sounds that are are beyond what anything anyone has heard before. And they right. say, this is, this is the sound of transformation. Right. But when I, so, you know, it's interesting that you mention Hollywood again, because when I, I think about religious radio of this period, I'm not thinking about the, you know, the moody radio. I'm thinking about Amy Simple McPherson and, and you know, what she's doing out in L.A. I mean, are there any connections between, like, her ministry, and, and which was very theatrical, um, and, and the use of an instrument like the, the Nova Chord? 
Yeah, so if people don't know, Amy Temple McPherson is like a four-square church now. It's one of the mm-hmm. big mega churches yeah. in, on the West Coast. And like it, it's the first mega church in in the country. And it's at the time, it's like only slightly bigger than the Moody's. Like Moody's is a mega church itself. Um, yeah, and she's one of the early um, forays into radio. She's a uh, pastor that comes out of Chicago and, and goes to L.A. and starts this mega church there and you know tens of thousands of people come to that church five thousand people every week and they come and they listen to her do her, her sermons she does faith healing she does all kinds of stuff accompanied by a choir accompanied by huge numbers of musicians and among these musicians is her organist is this guy paul beavers and paul beavers is kind of a weird guy mm. and he's this guy where all these ideas that we've been talking about, if you were to kind of like distill them down into a single person, this is what happens. And he is really religious, and the religion, sort of extreme at times religion of McPherson, sort of for him morphs into things that become a little bit more cultish, and he's a Scientologist, and then he starts to say that he's a... um, alien that's been hmm. put down on Earth Perhaps he came from outer space. Mm-hmm. Perhaps he came from outer space, right? Yeah. Um, and one of the things he gets really into is the Nova Court. He mm-hmm. is um, a technical consultant to Hammond and somehow is able to get his hands on five Nova Courts. He sets them up in a warehouse where he also has all of these other instruments that he's been collecting. Theremin, um, Ode Montenance, um, other things, and he sets them up in a big line, and people say when they go there, he'll just set them all in a huge line along the wall, and he'll just run up and down the wall, the wall just like pressing buttons and hitting things <laughs> and making all of these sounds. Um, I mean, if that's not enough, like, he is, like, of himself, just sort of a, a L.A. figure. He's deeply conservative. Like, everyone says he's sort of on the right of Nixon, walks around with, like, a little elephant pin on his lapel, He's um, bisexual, like, early on into, like, the sex... I mean, this is the 50s, and he's mm-hmm. early on as sort of the sexual liberation movement. And people say, like, oh, yeah, you know, like, I did some work with them, and then, like, after the work, he, like, wanted to take me out to this, like, sex club. And, like, he is a, a wild character. And after these sort of, like, early stints in religious communities, he gets jobs in Hollywood doing soundtracks, doing special effects, like, mostly, like, fully special effects work. Um, and that's why he, and how he started to collect all these different instruments. Um, and he's the guy, really, where, like, all this stuff comes together. He, like, sees the different sounds that this can make. He sees the sort of, like, connection to the other, otherworldly. And, like, when Moat comes along mm-hmm. with this, like, his synthesizer in 1967, like, Paul Beaver's, like, gets it. Like, he knows what to do. And he knows how he's going to make this thing mainstream, and he does exactly what they did with the Nova Corps. So in 1967, he convinces Moog that he should be his sales rep. He should be his sales rep in L.A. Like, this crazy character should be the face of Moog for Hollywood, for the recording industry, for the music industry in L.A. I don't know how he convinces him to do it, but he convinces him to do it. And, like, and it turns out to be a great decision. Like, Paul hmm. Beavers, in 1967... He does the same thing that happened with Nemo. He takes it to um, Hollywood, 
and mm-hmm. Hollywood starts to use it first in The Graduate. Um, and like uh, Paul Beaver and his partner Bernie Cross want to play the move in Apocalypse Now, Invasion of the mm-hmm. Body Snatch. They play it in 130 films, right? The same story of the Novacord, right? Like that's how the Novacord solidifies itself there. And the other thing is he goes to the people who are on the radio. Who was on the radio in 1967? It's not really the religious groups in the way that it was in 1939 and 1941. Now it's rock and roll bands, right? Mm-hmm. So he goes to the Monterey Pop Festival, and he starts pitching it there. And he goes to all these different recording sessions, and he is there to set up the mode for the doors. He's there to set it up for the birds. He does a personal demo for George Harrison. Like, they're the ones playing them. And you hear them playing it on their records and stuff. But Paul Beavers is the guy who drove it over to the studio, came in, sat down, plugged it in, set everything up, and got it ready for them to play it. So like, hey, what kind of sound do you want? Like, okay, and dialed it in for them. Like, people didn't really know how to use this thing, and he's there showing them how to use it, showing how to do it. And from there, it just kind of takes off, right? Like, it's on everything. All of a sudden, the dude is all over the place. And that was the same thing with the Novacord. Like, the Novacord was something all over the place. And then something really, really smart happened that Robert Kamau does that I don't for the life of me understand why Hammond didn't do it. And what Moke does is he puts out a cheaper version that's available and smaller and it's easy to move around. Lots and lots of people can afford it. And when the mini Moog comes out in 1970, that's it. Like synthesizers are here. Right. And it's the Moog that ends up like everyone thinks of as that dawn of the synthesizer. But it already happened. It already happened because of Lawrence Hammond. He was the first one there to develop this thing and commercially sell it and make it popular within the culture, like, it had a place in American culture. We don't talk about it, we don't see it anymore, but it has for two decades longer. It was there expressing this very particular, very American emotion for the time, and that, well, in a way that nothing else was, and nothing else was. We, we don't talk about it ever, we don't know, like, I know the sound of it, mm-hmm. really, until I started looking into it, and no one has one. I've looked around and there's only a couple in museums, even like the Smithsonian has one. And there's one in a warehouse at the University of Michigan. And for this instrument that I personally think is more important at times to our story than the sousaphone ever was, not really getting any recognition. It's not really getting its place in that story. I'm just going to add one final note to end this episode. Despite being a man of seemingly limitless accomplishments, oddly enough, Lawrence Hammond never learned to play the electric organ that he invented or the Novacord. Back in the fall of 1921, the residents of the Ravenswood neighborhood in Chicago were divided, and they were divided over the sounds coming from a local business. Here's what the Tribune had to say at the time. Ravenswood wild bells ring Morpheus out, so say 44 embattled chimes. Anti-chimists, those who believe that the chimes of the tower of the J.C. Deegan Musical Bell Company Tower, 1770 Burtow Avenue, should be banned as a fiendish contrivance to keep Morpheus out of Ravenswood, had their day in court yesterday. M.L. Smith, 4216 North Polina Street, representing the objectors to the chimes, presented a petition signed with 44 names to Dr. E. Vernon Hill of the Health Department, who has announced that the male plebiscite is to decide the date of the chimes. 
Between 60 and 70 residents of Ravenswood who admire the chimes and desire to hear them through future nights already have been heard. Martha, October 4th, 1921. Now the owner of the J.C. Deegan Musical Bell Company, not surprisingly named J.C. Deegan, had reasons to defend the sounds coming from his factory uh, because the business was a well-established one in Chicago, having formed in, back in 1880, originally in St. Louis before moving up to the Chicago area around the turn of the century. Uh, Deegan was a clarinetist, but he devoted himself to making glockenspiels, and xylophones, and even to creating new instruments like the vibra harp, which we'll hear now. Now the vibra harp as played by Lionel Hampton in that little clip of the song Memories of You is better known as the vibraphone, and it was created by a J.C. Deegan employee by the name of Henry J. Sluter. Uh, Deegan and Sluter prized having the finest materials for their instruments, uh, including exotic woods from all over the world, including the ones listed in this advertisement from 1919. Wanted. Several thousand feet of rosewood, cocobolo, cocos, or other tropical wood. In logs, boards, or slabs. Phone Lakeview 4366. J.C. Deegan Incorporated. Chicago Tribune, December 7th, 1919. And if that wasn't enough, the J.C. Deegan Company also provided the chimes that were heard coming from the Tribune Tower for decades, r- roughly around Christmas time. And they even made the Carolyn that was in the Hall of Science at the 1933 Century of Progress World's Fair, you would think all of these accomplishments would be enough to secure the company's place in the history of not just Chicago music, but music writ large. But here in the studio today, we have with us the city of Chicago cultural historian, Tim Samuelson. And he's not alone. He's brought some objects with him. And he's going to tell us why we should really care about the Deegan Company. But first, Tim, why don't you tell us a little bit more about what you brought with you? I have some genuine Deegan manufactured equipment. And so there is a Deegan uh, dinner chime, which started out being used to announce dinner. But it later was repurposed into a more familiar and famous use. And also another tool made by Deegan, which we will explain later. Okay. Well, let's um, let's start then uh, with the chime. So, you know, I've, in this episode, I've talked a little bit about how people could hear Deegan chimes all across the city in structures like the Tribune Tower, or if they were visitors to the 1933 World's Fair. Um, but there was a, a Deegan chime that became much more familiar to people, not just in Chicago, but all across the country. And in fact, we still kind of hear its notes today. What, what was that? You hear it today, and it is the sound of NBC. And the way it all starts out is in the history of radio, 
You had in the early days when radio needed to announce itself on the hour and the half hour, if you just kind of broke in your broadcast and announced the call letter, it was pretty intrusive. So radio stations starting in the 1920s started to devise a way to do it more gently. And it was WSB in Atlanta, Georgia, who bought a set of Deegan dinner chimes that you'd announce dinner with at a club or on a railroad car. And they made it their signature sound in the early 1920s, where they took the popular World War I song over there. Over there, over there, send the word, spread the word, over there. And made that their signature to announce the hour and the half hour. So if you were listening in the early uh, 1920s in Atlanta to WSB, you would hear on the hour and half hour, this is station WSB, the voice of the South. That's the typical big radio voice of the time. But it goes farther than that. So you get the introduction of NBC, the National Broadcasting Company. They owned some stations, but actually their business was supply radio programs to other stations. And so it was done over wires and communication wires. And there needed to be a way to be able to signal when you went from a remote broadcast to a local broadcast. So they were aware of what WSB had done. And so they tried to develop their own system of chimes. And so what they did for every NBC affiliate, they got a set of Deegan dinner chimes. And then it was up to an announcer to change the switch over from local to remote broadcast or whatever and play this chime. Now, NBC decided they were going to get fancy. It wasn't just going to be that simple little over there. So they experimented and came up with seven notes. So imagine the poor radio engineer trying to juggle the technicalities of the radio and then having to play this. As far as we can tell, this is the original version of it. Seven notes. Yeah, I'm impressed. I can never master it. <laughs> I mean, I, it took me a while to remember yeah. it myself. So enough mm -hmm. people were screwing it up mm -hmm. that they actually decided to simplify it into four notes. And they would still screw it up. <laughs> so finally, NBC decides to come up with their signature sound. How badly can you screw up three notes? And you get the one that you can still hear on an NBC broadcast to this day. You ready? Idiot and they proof. still keep it they still keep it going and it all started out on chicago manufactured deegan dinner chimes made right on berto that's amazing that's probably like one of the most familiar sounds to to our ears anybody who's you know turned on a television or listened to a radio station over the years it's the first sound that ever was given a united states patent in fact, it was interesting when there was the whole issue of recorded music and what you can protect by copyright. One of the precedents that was cited was uh, NBC lobbying to have a protected copyright. Now, they like to spread it around. In fact, there is a train line where they actually paid the railroad 
for the people announcing dinner to play as the announcement for dinner, just as a little bit of advertising while people were riding on the train. So it's still, in, I mean, now there's no reason to use it for transition from local broadcaster as a signal, but it's become a signature. In fact, for many years, NBC's trademark was basically a picture of what would be a Deegan Shime with, with the mallet that was used to play it. So the other little variant on this, and you don't hear it, but in the days of the radio, if there was an emergency where you were going to break and you had to announce something serious happening, in fact, this was used in the case of the Hindenburg, the dirigible mm -hmm. bursting into flames at Lakehurst, the D-Day invasion, you use the very rare NBC four-note chime, and this would indicate whoever is at the controls that to not break into the next program, there is a special bulletin coming in. So here is live from Lakehurst, New Jersey. Mm -hmm. You get that extra G note. Mm -hmm. That means big news is breaking. Crazy. That's really interesting. Um, and just to think that it you know, started in a factory here in the Ravenswood neighborhood in, in Chicago. Yeah. Now, you know, this is a sound that's familiar probably to, to most of our, our listeners, but the other device that you have with you that connects to a, a subtler history, but one that's perhaps even more influential. So what is the, the other object with you? This is a tuning key made by J.C. Deegan Company. Now, Deegan was a musician, and he had an ear that was very sensitive to sound. And so when he was making percussion instruments, so he was making musical bells, xylophones, he realized that they were very poorly made, very poorly tuned. He actually was able to make the first really accurate xylophones that made the xylophone suitable for a concert orchestra before you couldn't really use them. So he was an amazing guy. But the other thing that drove him crazy, and it drove anybody who made a percussion instrument crazy, is that there was no set pitch for orchestras and music to be tuned to. So if you have a manufacturing that's making things like xylophones and whatnot, it's a problem in getting an instrument of the same pitch. So you have to make a lot of different varieties. So he saw a lot of problems with this. So he started to advocate, and from his sense as an acoustician, he was a master acoustical, uh, uh, um, of acoustical technology, that the perfect standardized pitch would be A440 hertz. Not hertz as in rent-a-car, but hertz mm -hmm. in terms of uh, and sound. And so he lobbied that this should be made a standard pitch, he gets the American Federation of Musicians to adopt it as a standardized pitch for all United States orchestras. And then he gets the United States government to accept it in 1920 in part of the Bureau of Standards and Measures. So with this pitch, this, in fact, you could even say, what's Chicago famous for? Yeah, the blues and jazz that spreads all over. Probably the most influential thing that's everywhere in music is not any musical genre. It's the setting of A equals 440 as the standardized pitch because it's in most pieces of music that you hear. And if you're trying to tune your orchestra to get it into pitch beforehand, 
Deegan made a one-bar, like a little one-bar xylophone, which I have. Here's a four on that dinner chime. And you would hit this, and then this would give something for the musical group to tune to. Here we go. A equals 440. Nice. So you can still go to Berteau. You'll see the building. It's just east of the Ravenswood tracks. And probably the home of one, a very important musical instrument company that did, you know, whose work branched into amazing ways, but actually is something that set a standard that is not only in the United States, but world music. Well, thank you, Tim. Um, so that's our show. Uh, we really appreciate having you here. I want to thank you for being our guest in the studio and for bringing these wonderful props. I want to thank our other guest from the first half of the episode, Sam Cholke, our uh, Pocket Guide to Hell players, Christopher Rathjen, Meredith Milliron, and Rachel Wilson, my co-host, Elliot Heilman, our producer, Annie Klein, and WLPN Radio. And as for you, fine fellow Chicagoans, keep making history. And now, Tim, do you want to take us out by playing the chimes one last time? I will do the original version of it. Or more familiarly known as. And signing off for now.